Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be here with the people of God this morning to worship him and to hear from his precious word. I hope that you are excited to worship with us uh, this morning, and I'm just so grateful for the band, for the time that they put in to prepare our hearts for the word and to, to, to sing the word. We sing the word, we pray the word, uh, we preach the word, we see the word through the Lord's Supper. And so uh, my prayer this morning is that all of us will just fall more deeply in love with the word. As many of you know, last weekend, the elders went on a retreat to discuss corporate worship. Uh, this was not, this is not our first retreat. We went on a retreat last year and we looked at our founding documents. So the, the objective last year, last February, was to, to go through and look at our constitution and bylaws, our doctrinal statement, vision statement, and all of these various documents and to make sure that those are tight and clear so that we could begin to put those out for you all to read and see and also begin the process of renewing our membership as a church. This particular retreat, and the hope is that we'll do this continually with various topics that we'll need to cover, but the objective of this retreat was to discuss the service, the corporate worship service that we have, that we're having here today. So I want to begin by just thanking Will for preaching for us, uh, thank, thank him for bringing God's word from Hebrews chapter one. What an incredible passage. I remember when, one of the things when, when people preach is, uh, they ask, you know, what, what should I preach? And one of the things that comes to my mind very quickly is, well, what is a, especially if someone is just beginning to preach or has been preaching for a short time, is what are some passages that have really just impacted your life? Things that, that, have, that God has massaged into your daily walk and into your life and into your witness. And this was a passage that Will thought uh, cohered with what we were looking at and that had had an effect, an incredible effect in his life as well. So I'm thankful to Will for bringing the word to us. And I just want to thank also our elders, Ken, Mike, and Walt, as well as their wives for taking the time last weekend. You know, these guys have busy schedules. They are flying here and there all over the place and they have a lot to do. And I'm just grateful that they sacrifice so much of their time for this local body. And I assure you they do. Uh, they give a lot of their time and their wives <laughs> sacrifice a lot of the time with their husbands so that they can serve this local body, so that they can uh, lead and do things like go away on a retreat. So the first thing I want to say, I just want to give a little bit of an introduction to what we discussed on that retreat uh, as we've now come off of it. And the first thing I want to say is that we all as elders very much affirm and celebrate the history uh, of, of Four Corners Church and its worship, the history and the health of Four Corners worship. I can remember when I applied to, to come and be the pastor here at Four Corners that, that one of the things that struck me in comparison with a lot of the other job postings that I had seen is just the level of theological seriousness and biblical depth that came across from the very beginning on the job posting but also that came across when I first came here and got to experience worship with this local church. And so the last thing in the world that we as elders were about as we went away on this retreat is kind of an overhaul of Four Corners worship. Uh, really what we were about is trying to mature us in that which is already healthy, in that which is already God-honoring. Four Corners, going back to its origin, had an emphasis on the heart, not an emphasis on the externals, but an emphasis on where the heart was as we came together to worship God. Also, biblical centrality 
and the gospel always being at the forefront of everything that we do. I remember when I first came here in June of 2015, and I sat down shortly thereafter with those who were leading our worship, and one of the things that was so refreshing to me to hear was we, we must make sure that our songs are about the Lord, that our songs are about God. They're a celebration, a vertical celebration of our great God and not just kind of a, a stewing in our own experiences, a, a kind of back and forth between each other on our experiences, but a vertical orientation to our worship. This is the heart of those who are a part of our band But as I say, this retreat was for us as leaders to come along and say, how can we be more intentional and in in clarifying what it is we do as a church in our worship? And so there are a few things that I just want to note briefly before we move into the sermon today. And the first is that we have a desire based on scripture to represent the gospel through the worship service. In other words, as the gospel affects the individual human heart, we want that pattern of effect to be seen in our corporate worship service. And that begins with adoration of God. We look at him and we see him in all of his glory. And that then reminds us of our sinfulness. And so adoration sort of moves then into confession. We then kind of poverty of spirit, you know, in the Beatitudes, we're we're poor in spirit before God. We become meek before God. We realize who he is and who we are as sinners. But we're not left there. We're then assured of God's grace. We're assured of pardon. And then out of that, we thank God for what he has done. We make prayers to him and we receive his word as a means by which we then go out and live out the life he's called us to. And so what we want to do as elders is to ensure that our worship service is is communicating this gospel, is communicating every aspect of this. We would not want to leave out confession because that's a key aspect of our understanding of the gospel, that we're sinners saved by God's grace. We would not want to leave us in sin because we understand Christ didn't leave us in sin. He saved us out of that. So we're assured of eternal life through Christ. And then we thank God and we receive humbly his word. So representing the gospel is a key aspect of of what we discussed at this elder retreat. Another thing that I should emphasize is that it has a vertical and a horizontal dynamic. It's one in which we give God the glory, as I just discussed with the the, the worship team as, as I first met them and they talked about adoration. It has this glory of God's center, but it also recognizes the good of the body, And so how is the body built up? By the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, as Paul says in Romans 1.16. So it's by means of the gospel being in view to the individual Christian that he or she is built up, or he or she's good is established. And so we desire to glorify God, but also we desire the good of one another. And so uh, just stay tuned. Some of these things are going to begin to be implemented in the weeks and months ahead. And once we establish these in our, in our order of service and once our band and I begin to kind of work through some of the administrative aspects of this, we'll put our order of service on our website. And I want to make a quick note about that. Because on our website, under about who we are as a church, you will find a number of things there. You're going to find our doctrine because this is key to who we are. You're going to find there our vision. This is key to who we are. And then also you're going to find our order of service. Because I want you to understand this. As a church, the primary thing we do is worship the Lord. 
That is the primary thing that we are called to do. I like the way that Mark Dever puts it. He says that worship is the purpose of redemption. That redemption has as its end point worship. We know this because that's precisely what we're going to be doing in heaven forever. In a new heaven and a new earth, we're going to be exalting our God, exalting and we're going to be worshiping him. So this is every bit as important as our doctrine and as our vision, our worship, how it is we celebrate our God. So I just want to start with that so that you would have an idea of what we talked about on this retreat and so that you would have a, an understanding of what's coming down the road. And please do, if you have any questions, come and talk to any of the elders, myself, Ken, Mike, Walt, any of us. We would love to answer any questions that you have about the specifics. But as I say, those will become clearer as we move forward. So today, we come to the topic of adultery. This is uh, not a positive topic, by no means, just as we looked at several weeks ago with murder. But today, we'll, we're looking at adultery, or adultery according to Jesus, or adultery rightly understood. So please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 27. Matthew 5, 27. We're going to be in verses 27 through 30. And so just as we covered the topic of murder a few weeks ago, when we were last in the Sermon on the Mount, today we come to the topic of adultery. We've had a couple of weeks where we've looked at some other things. We obviously had Easter, and then following that, Will preached on Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 during the retreat. So today we turn back to the Sermon on the Mount with this topic of adultery. And so we could just kind of go in and take this right out of its context and set it over to the side and analyze it and study it. But we know, as with any passage of Scripture, that that would be foolish to do. So we have to understand where this fits. And this actually fits within the context of chapter 5, verses 21 to 48. That's the larger section of which Jesus' discussion here on adultery is a part. And Jesus addresses in this section, verses 21 to 48... He addresses a number of important topics, a number of key topics. So we've got murder, adultery, divorce, swearing falsely, retaliation, and loving your neighbor. And what he's doing is that each of these topics really serves as an illustration or an example of the collective truth that we discovered in verses 17 and 20. So just look in your Bibles there at chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And in those verses, I won't read them, but in those verses, there are essentially three things that come together. Enduring scripture, fulfilling Christ, and surpassing righteousness. These are the three things that kind of come together to form a collective truth around which all of these others, other examples, all of these examples and illustrations must be formed. And so enduring scripture, Jesus upholds the true meaning of the Old Testament law. He does not abolish it. And so here, as with murder, Jesus is dealing with the law. Jesus didn't come along and say, okay, there's that Old Testament law. Just go ahead and throw that in the trash can because right now what I want to give you is the real ethic, the real truth, the real righteousness. Forget all that old stuff. I've arrived. Now I've got something entirely fresh and entirely new for you. No, Jesus doesn't abolish the law. He doesn't throw it to the side. He deals with the law, but 
He deals with it as it has been interpreted. So he says, you have heard that it was said. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So enduring scripture, that's the first part of this passage. And then we have fulfilling the fulfilling Christ. Jesus shows his authority as the one who has fulfilled the law. And that's the reason when we come to this passage, as with murder, Jesus will say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, I say to you. In other words, I, the one who himself is the fulfillment of all of that, I am speaking to you truly what it is about. I am explicating entirely and truthfully that which you have known in God's written word. And so we have the fulfilling Christ, and then finally, we have the surpassing righteousness. Jesus is explaining that true, real righteousness is that which lives out God's law from the heart. And we find that at the very end of those verses, verses 17 to 20, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. And we know that at the heart of Pharisaic religion was a mere external observance of a written code. They thought they had salvation in that. They did not trust in God. They did not love God. They did not love their neighbor. And they rejected his son. That was at the heart of Pharisaic religion. Mere externalism. And Jesus comes along and says, no, it must come from the heart. And so all of this, just as a matter of introduction, helps us to understand that when we come to the topic of murder or adultery or all of these others that we will find in these verses, we're working out from those three truths. Enduring scripture, fulfilling Christ, and surpassing righteousness forms the foundation for all of these specific examples or illustrations that Jesus will go on to give. So let's look. Let's look at our verses. Verses 27 to 30. Adultery rightly understood. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray to our God and ask for his help. Our Father, we are grateful to be here this morning. We thank you that we can speak from the heart to you, that we call on the name of the Lord, that we call on you, as, as Paul says that in Romans 10, that in order to call on you, we must first hear about you. And we hear about you from those who give your word, who share your word. And we thank you this morning, God, as we are mindful of that. We, we thank you that we 
are here this morning because of your grace and mercy as it has been worked into the fabric of our lives through your people. God, all of us can look back over our own separate histories and we can see all of the ways in which you have used your people to bring us to this very morning when we are calling upon the name of the Lord. And so God, we're grateful today for your grace worked out through your people in each of our lives. And we're thankful to be here this morning. We're thankful that we can sing praises to your name, that we can speak to you as Abba, not as a distant God, but as a God who calls us sons and daughters. We praise you for that, God. And we ask that this morning we will be faithful in listening and faithful in speaking and faithful in praying and singing, God, that we will, that we will do these things in the Spirit, that we'll be filled with your Spirit as we sit under your word. We thank you, God, for one another. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the work that you promised to do by means of your word. And so, God, we just anticipate this morning how you will instruct us, how you will convict us, and how you will assure us. Call us, God, to respond, not to just hear these things, but to do them, to, to sit under the king as he speaks from the top of the mountain, and he speaks to those who call him Lord and master those who love him as Savior, would you help us to listen to our King this morning as we hear his words from the Sermon on the Mount? Would you help us by your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So there are three things to see, I think, this morning as we go through these verses, verses 27 to 30. First, we have the act of adultery. Secondly, the look of lust. And then finally, the seriousness of sin. So let's start this first one, the act of adultery. I'm gonna read verses 27 and 28 again so we can give some special attention to those verses. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. At the end of Will's sermon, if you've listened to it on podcast, and I would recommend that you do certainly listen to it, or if you were here last week, at the end of Will's sermon, we were reintroduced to the biblical character Job. And I'm not sure if you've ever read Job or if you uh, have had much exposure to that book, maybe throughout the years, but I would definitely encourage you to go through and look at that book and look at Job's suffering and look at God's faithfulness and look at God's sovereignty, all of these various themes woven together in the book of Job. But I want you, for our purposes today, to listen to the way Job is described at the very beginning of this book, verse one of the entire book says this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And one of the things that you will go on to see as you see Job speaking to God and sort of declaring his innocence is Job is not, is not ultimately innocent. We know that because Job needed a savior. He needed someone to come and to die for his sins and that one was Jesus Christ. Job needed that. We need that. Every person since Adam has needed that. But we do know that Job is a blameless upright by God's grace. He's a blameless 
upright man. And one of the ways that Job's uprightness, his righteousness, his his good character practically shows itself up in his life, we learn in chapter 31, verse 9. And this is what it says. It says that Job had not allowed his heart, his heart, to become enticed toward a woman or lurked at his neighbor's door. In other words, he had not allowed his heart to go after a woman on the inside and he had not gone to find the wife of his neighbor to sleep with her. That is essentially what Job is saying. He had not done these things. And it is this emphasis on the heart. Notice, Job does not simply say, I have not lurked at the door of my neighbor i.e. gone after his wife, but he says, my heart has not been enticed towards a woman. That is how Job explains it. And is this emphasis on the heart with regard to adultery that we find in Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount. As with the topic of murder, Jesus begins by addressing the prevailing interpretation And teaching of the law. This is what the people would have heard as they would have gone to Jewish synagogue. On the Sabbath, they would have heard this being taught. You shall not commit adultery. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is what all of the people would have heard as they would have worshipped the Lord together in synagogue. Now on the surface, there is absolutely nothing wrong with this teaching. In fact, it is a verbatim quote of the Ten Commandments. It's a verbatim quote of Exodus 20, 14, where it says, you shall not commit adultery. So Jesus is, is, is saying, you've heard it was said, and then he quotes explicitly the Ten Commandments. So on the surface, there's absolutely no problem here. But the problem with this teaching is that it was focused merely on the external act, the act of adultery. That is the focus as this is being taught, as this is being interpreted by the scribes and Pharisees, just as with everything else that they taught. It had merely to do with that which was external. You shall not commit adultery. It went like this. As long as I don't sleep with another man's wife, or as long as I, a married man, do not sleep with a woman besides my wife, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I haven't done that. I'm good. I'm righteous. I'm keeping this law. That was the entire life of the Pharisees. They tithe mint and dill and cumin. They tithe their spices Can you imagine cutting off 10% of spices and so forth? These guys did this, always concerned with keeping rigorously, as they saw it, the externals of the law. Then Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, God himself who authored the law, comes along and says this. So that's what you're hearing. Don't commit the act of adultery. That's what you're hearing. But I say to you, it is a matter of the heart. It is far deeper than the act. It is not merely about what you do on the outside, but what you do with your thoughts on the inside. It is precisely what Jesus will go on to say 
in Matthew 15. We've read these words before. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Out of the heart come all of these things. That was Jesus's explication of the Old Testament law. And we know that this is true even from the law. And this is, this is important for understanding that scripture endures. Because see, Jesus did not come and give us something new in that regard. He came and fulfilled that which was old. And we see this even in the Ten Commandments. The seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery. And the tenth commandment is you shall not covet. And it goes on to say you shall not covet your neighbor's Wife, And what's interesting is if you go and look at the Greek Old Testament, the same word for covet Jesus uses here for desire, lustful intent. You look upon a woman with lust. It's the same word in the 10th commandment in Exodus. You shall not covet. In other words, I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to us is, had you understood the law in its entirety, you would already know this. You would already know the fact that to not commit adultery is to not lust from the heart. And we see that with Job. Job recognized that. My heart has not been enticed toward a woman. And then he goes on to speak about the act itself. Neither, Job says, have I lusted after a woman in my heart, nor have I gone to her house to sleep with her. So this was always the teaching of the Lord. This was always God's law. Jesus comes as the fulfillment, not only to explicate it as being a heart thing, but to by his spirit put it on the heart of every single person who would trust in him. So adultery is not merely in the act, but in the heart. And before we go into any further detail this morning, there are already a few effects that this truth should have on each of us. How does this fact, this very simple fact, as we look at these verses, you shall not commit adultery begins verse 27 and in his heart begins verse 28. So just this very truth alone that it is about the heart and not merely about the external act should have an effect on each of us before we go any further in these verses. And so here are some of the effects I think it should have on us. First, it destroys our pride and contempt for external adulterers and adulteresses. Now what I mean by that is this. It is easy, like a Pharisee, to sit smugly if you have not committed adultery in terms of an external act, if you have not gone out and slept with someone who is married or you yourself being married have gone out and slept with someone other than your wife, it is easy for you to sit comfortably in your chair this morning perhaps and to begin to think about so-and-so who has done that external act and to begin to smugly and pridefully say, well, that's not me, that's not me. Thank you, Lord. Just like that Pharisee, right? Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector, that I'm not like this vile sinner. Thank you, Lord, that I have not committed adultery. I think what Jesus' words here do is they shatter that entire mindset. They come along and say, 
but you're an adulterer too. All of us, every single person in this room has done what we're reading here. Every single person is guilty as an adulterer. And that leads to the next thing, next effect that I think this truth has on us, and that is that it pushes us to cling to Christ's righteousness. Because we have to understand this, there is only one person, imagine this, there's only one person who's ever lived who never did this. Only one person, and that's Jesus. Not a single person in this room can say that about himself or herself. Only Christ. And so one of the great things about the Sermon on the Mount is just as, it is, just as the law is meant to do, you're, su- you're supposed to read the Ten Commandments, and we see the rich young ruler. He didn't do this. He came up to Jesus, and he said, yeah, I've kept all those. Well, what's next? What's next, Jesus? I've done all of that. He, f- he failed to see it. He hasn't done this. So the Ten Commandments, the effect of the Ten Commandments is it condemns us. It holds us under our sin, and it says, sinner, in need of a savior. And nowhere does this happen more than in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're here today and you don't know this Christ, you've never trusted in this Christ, God has not become for you your hope. You're living in your sin with no regard for God. The call is to repent of your sin, to turn away from it, and to trust in Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the righteous one, who in his righteousness gave his life on the cross in our place to pay our debt, to pay our penalty, that God might see us clothed in Christ's righteousness. That's the call for every person. And that's the call for all of us who belong to Christ too to cling to him even today, to recognize that even though we sin, we have a savior. And that's the reason, as I said before, that in a corporate worship service, we should not just have confession of sin, but we should have assurance of God's pardon. And so whether you are not a believer or you are a believer, this truth should cause you to run to Jesus, to, to, to flee from any sense of self-righteousness and to run to him, to kiss the son, as I've said before, as it says in Psalm 2, to lay hold of Christ as he lays hold of you. I think another effect that that this truth has on us is is it reminds us that we have renewed hearts. We encountered this in Titus. In Titus chapter three, that our hearts have been regenerated and they have been renewed so that there is truly in practice, a difference between an unbeliever and a believer. We should not live these kind of woe is me, uh, defeated kind of lives as Christians that, that we have a power in us. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, the same power with which God raised Jesus from the dead, that very power is alive working in us. And that power is pushing us towards holiness and Christ-likeness. And so with those renewed, regenerated hearts, we actually can live out the Sermon on the Mount. It will be imperfect until Christ returns. But we are called to live this as Christians. We have been given power to live this as Christians. And as Job, we can walk in purity of heart. By God's grace, we can. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning, you don't think that. You really just think, I'm I'm just a defeated mass of sin. 
I mean, maybe you have this kind of lopsided understanding. Yes, poverty of spirit. Yes, meekness, mourning, all of that. But one who can hunger and thirst for righteousness. One who has God's law written on his or her heart. One who's been circumcised in the heart by God's Holy Spirit. That's who you are, brother or sister. In Christ, that is who you are. I think it also convicts us in specific ways. So I want to say this. Maybe you have not been nearly, hear this, hear this. Maybe you have not been nearly as faithful to your spouse as you think. Maybe not. Maybe the problems in your marriage are a result of rampant adultery which you've given no attention to. Think about this. The things that we put up with in our lives. Maybe your marriage is literally falling apart. And it goes back to this. Because there's no union. You've cracked the union, the one flesh relationship we we read about in Genesis 2. We read about in Ephesians 5. That one flesh bond and union is being daily, weekly, monthly, whatever it might be, split apart because there's adultery all in your heart. And so your marriage is crumbling and falling apart and you're trying to figure out why. I think Jesus would say to us this morning, start there. Start there. Don't go read a book. Start here. Matthew 5, verses 27 to 28. So now let's look at how Jesus fills out his argument in verse 28. The look of lust. The look of lust. So look with me at verse 28. It's up here on the screen as well. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We've already read the verse. But I want to point this out. The emphasis in this verse is on the looking. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent That's the specific place we should focus. There is one very important thing that must be understood here, I think. The eyes stand on both sides of the heart. Try to visualize what it is I'm saying. The eyes have the heart, put the heart in the middle. By the way, I should probably define heart. Heart is simply the center of your person is the best way to understand it. It's it's the, the springboard from which everything that you are comes. It is the, the center of your, your willing. It's the center of your affections. It's the center of your emotional life. It's the, the center of your intellectual life. It is the core of your person. And so, we have the heart. And on this side, we have your eyes. And on this side, we have the eyes. The eyes follow the heart. That's the first thing I want you to see. So the eyes on both sides of the heart. The eyes first follow the heart. In other words, the eyes look where the heart wants them to look. Did you get that? The eyes go where the heart wants it to go. So the ultimate problem is the heart. We just read it. We just read it in Matthew 15. The ultimate problem is not the eyes. The ultimate problem is the heart. 
Everything, Jesus said, adultery, murder, all that, comes from the heart. That's the problem. And this is why Jesus says, notice his words, that the looking has an intention behind it. Right? Look at that. With intent. The looking has something driving it. The eyes are being driven by something, and that is intent, which is inside the person. That's in the heart, who looks at a woman with lustful intent. So we know that the eyes follow the heart. However, the eyes also inform the heart. And you can't miss this in this passage. They follow the heart, but they also inform the heart. In other words, they act as a door by which all kinds of images, scenarios, fantasies enter down deep into the heart. They're like a gate. And when you open the gates of your eyes, all kinds of things begin to flood into the heart and corrupt the heart still further. The heart already being corrupt pushes the eyes in certain directions. The eyes are then open to things and the heart becomes corrupted still further. This is why there's so much sin in our world and even in us. is because of all of this darkness coming in, going into the heart and driving out the eyes still further. And this is why Job, going back to Job, whom we looked at earlier, said this, I made a covenant. Maybe you've read these words before. I I encountered these words as a teenager. This is kind of a a typical verse that you get, you know, as a teenage boy, post-adolescence, you know, you, you need these words. And so you get these words And you begin to meditate on them and hopefully you begin to obey them and and put them into practice. But it says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Now that's verse one of chapter 31. He goes on to, to say what I've already read to you in verse nine, which had to do with what? The heart being enticed and the lurking at the door of his neighbor. In other words, what are we looking at here? Eyes, heart, act. The eyes drive the heart, and the heart drives the act. The reason why Job in verse nine can say, my heart has not been enticed towards a young woman, and the reason he could say, I've not been lurking at my neighbor's door, is because of verse one. I made a covenant with my eyes, not to look lustfully upon a young woman. It all goes back to verse one. So the eyes follow the heart. However, the eyes also inform the heart. I think we see this negatively illustrated in the life of King David. Undoubtedly, if you have spent kind of any time in the church, grown up maybe as a Christian, you have read the tragic account of King David, 2 Samuel eleven two and following. Listen to these words. It happened. Mm. What a terrible day in the life of Israel, in the life of this man. It happened late one afternoon. By the way, he should have been out at battle with his armies. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof 
a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, this is where he should have most certainly stopped. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And I imagine here, and this is just uh, imagination, I imagine here that the person who says this is thinking, Oh, king, you who love the Lord our God, you who fought Goliath, you who fought Goliath in God's strength, who trusted in the name of Yahweh, oh, king, this man is married, perhaps. But nonetheless, he gets the question, the reminder from the Lord through his providence, and how often while being tempted to sin, does God put things in our path to remind us, no, don't do it. Paul says that in every case we are tempted that we have a way of escape. And how many times we've seen God do that. How faithful he is, even in the moment of sin, to say, don't, don't do it. It's a thought, it's a word, it's a, rem- a remembrance, something you remember, but God says, don't do it. And we don't listen. And that's David here. So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. He lay with her. He saw her, and then he lay with her. You know, there's a lot of things that could be said about this, and we're not preaching 2 Samuel 11 too. So I'm not gonna go into great detail here, but I just wanna make one point. Two points, actually. One is, sometimes there's a lot of sloth in the life of a person who's going down a road of sexual immorality. And what I mean here is I think that you can kind of infer some sloth, maybe some presumption on the part of David. He should have been out at battle. He should have been vigorously, as Paul will say in Colossians, he should have been vigorously doing everything unto the Lord, which means he should have been out with his army fighting the Lord's battles. But he's become a little little, little complacent. He's become a little slothful. He's settled into successes And it's in that, that softness of heart and that softness of life and that complacency and that laziness that Satan comes in and tempts him to do all of this. That's one thing I think we need to see. A second thing we need to see is that anyone can fall. You think this morning that you're too holy to fall to this? That you would never commit adultery? We hear all the time about pastors and church leaders falling to this. Anybody, not not just someone who you think might kind of have it all together or might always be in the Bible. Any person can fall. Take heed lest you fall, Paul says. Anybody can fall. David fell. Anyone who's ever read the narrative of David's life would think this highly improbable. That David would sin in this way, but he did. He fell and we can fall too. Take heed lest you fall. In Proverbs 6.25, we hear this counsel regarding the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. In other words, the desiring of her beauty in your heart comes by way of you seeing 
her eyelashes, I guess. You know, that was a particularly attractive feature. But, but it was the eyelashes. And put anything in that, in that line. By, by noticing her attractive blank, whatever the case might be. And I say this to you women too. Noticing his attractive blank, whatever the case might be. This is where it starts with the eyes. Second Peter 2.14 says, they have eyes full of adultery. Eyes full of adultery. It's in the eyes, it's in the heart. So how does this play itself out in our lives? The first thing to see is that Jesus is not talking about a momentary glance or an involuntary perception of someone's physical attractiveness. God has made us as, as sexual creatures. We, that's how we reproduce. That's how we reproduce human beings. So it is certainly not, this is certainly not referring to as you're walking down the street and you happen to look up and you see someone and there's a momentary thought or a perception even, that's an attractive person. We all do that. It's just recognizing something for what it is. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a momentary glance or an involuntary perception of this physical attractiveness. What Jesus is talking about is voluntary with intent. It is intentional with lustful intent. What Jesus is talking about is not momentary. The verb is a present participle. Keeps on looking. Everyone who keeps on looking at a woman with the purpose to lust or with lustful intent. So how should we characterize this looking? I wanna give you a few words to kind of help you hang your hat on this idea and begin to understand, okay, how do I apply this to my own life? I, I, I pray the Holy Spirit's convicting us all, even now, but I hope here to bring this down to earth a little bit. What does it look like to do this? What does it look like to, to go in a direction of looking at a woman with lustful intent? I want to give you a few words. The first is repeating. This is the classic second glance, right? So a person walks by. You have that perception. You have a choice to make. Do I turn? Look again? Or do I not? I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a young woman. For Job, no. Of course I won't look again. No matter how beautiful, no matter how ill-clothed, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I will not look again. Gazing, lingering with the eyes. Maybe this is you on the beach with sunglasses, right? People next to you can't see your eyes, right? Your wife can't see your eyes. You got your sunglasses on. We're going to the beach this summer. So this is practical. Wives, be attentive. Wives, be attentive. Sunglasses on. And you can kind of gaze with sunglasses on, right? I mean, second glance and that kind of thing, maybe in public or whatever. But, but with sunglasses on on the beach, you can gaze a little, right? This is what Jesus has in mind. Lingering with the eyes. Gazing. Dwelling, contemplating with the mind. I won't get into what one might contemplate at this point. But beginning to fixate with your mind on that which you are lingering upon with your eyes. You're looking at it, you're lingering upon it, and you're beginning to observe it, to consider it, to deconstruct it, to undress 
it. And the reason I say it is because at this point, you are failing to love your neighbor by seeing them as an object of your foolish sexual desire. That's just a side note. That's a side point. Objectification of a human being is wicked in the sight of God. But it is, I say, a side note. Contemplating with the mind and then imagining what could be, what may never be, but what you would like to be, beginning to imagine yourself in certain scenarios, doing this in your mind. No one can see, no one knows, but quorum Deo, before the eyes of God. God knows, God sees every sin, every impulse of the heart, every glance, and he knows every thought. Pursuing, seeking opportunity to look and consider. So this is where it's not just a matter of you, you see and you dwell, but it's also there's a person whom you find attractive and you take every opportunity that you can to be in the vicinity of that person so that you can feed your lust, so that you can feed your desire and you can look upon them more and more. And by the way, this does not just mean that you're imagining sexual things with that person. It doesn't just mean that. Any kind of imagining, any kind of taking them in to feed your desire, even if it is a desire to marvel at them physically, is adulterous in the eyes of our Lord Jesus. I want to make two additional applications here. I hope that you can see that pornography is intrinsically adulterous. Intrinsically adulterous, which means every time you go there, you commit adultery. That is probably the, why, the reason why so many marriages are suffering, is because you are having an adulterous affair on your wife, brother. It is intrinsically adulterous. Also, want to say a word here to women. By the way, this goes both ways, but I think this is probably most applicable to women. I think a person would be foolish to suggest that a man's lust is the fault of a woman. If she wouldn't dress like that, I wouldn't look at her. That's foolish to a certain degree because that is a man who is dodging responsibility for his own sin. But what I want you to understand is that when women dress to evoke lust, they sin against the Lord Jesus. Imagine that. When you're getting ready, what's going on in your mind? Do you want men to look at you like that? Do you want men to take you in and feast upon you with their eyes and to think of you in their hearts and to begin to imagine you? Maybe you don't go there all the way. You don't think that all the way, but you dress in such a way, even in your motivation, subtle though they may be, to evoke that in men. Consider that. And consider how much this matters in light of Jesus' words. It's not just about modesty. Oh, be modest. Oh, be modest and dress that way because that's good and right and true. It's not just that. It's this. It's this. Unless we take any of this lightly, Jesus goes on to explain the seriousness of the whole matter. We'll briefly close here this morning. Verses 29 to 30, the seriousness of sin. If your right eye causes you to sin, Jesus says, verse 29, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, many commentators point out that Jesus is here using a figure of speech. He is using hyperbole in order to vividly and powerfully drive home his point. Jesus is not advocating that we literally maim ourselves. There were people in the early church. Origin of Alexandria is one in particular, a church father, an early theologian of the church who actually castrated himself in response to this passage. Needless to say, he regretted that later in his life. But there are a lot of people in the early church who practiced, a lot of monastic folks, guys who were intent on sort of leaving society and going and being in a cave or going away. They, they practiced this kind of thing so that there were later councils which would actually outlaw this kind of behavior, this literalistic interpretation of what Jesus is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is not advocating that we literally maim ourselves, but that we mortify our flesh at all costs, at all costs, in order to avoid sin. We must be willing to sacrifice our most precious things. So he says right eye. In the ancient world, the right eye, the right hand was the most valuable. Those are two of your most valuable faculties. In fact, warriors would hold the shield and it would often cover the left eye so that the right eye would be the one that you could see with in order to engage in battle. The right hand, the right eye, the most precious thing that a person has, if they are a cause of leading our hearts into sin, we must get rid of them, Jesus is saying, even that which is most precious. Any sacrifice will be worth it. So D.A. Carson puts it this way, we are to deal drastically with sin. Listen to this, we must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little of it around the edges. Maybe we're not gonna take a whole bite, but just a few nibbles around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, dig it out. So, the question I think to us is, what do you need to cut out, cut off, or dig out of your life to protect you from the destructive power of sin? Consider that now and do it. Don't hesitate one moment. So much sin and habit is perpetuated in our lives because when the Lord speaks, we don't listen. He says, now is the time to stop. Now is the time by my grace and the power of my spirit calling out upon me in poverty of spirit to confess and turn away from that sin and receive my mercy. Now is the time. Do it to now, husband. Do it now, husband or wife. Do it today. The person who keeps on sinning is a person who is on his way to hell. You cannot dodge that or miss that as you read it here, into hell. A person who keeps on sinning, 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. To perpetuate this is to show yourself not to be of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6. Adulterers, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived because you prayed a prayer. Do not be deceived because you tarried for a while, because you were, you were in Christ for a while, so it seemed. If this is the trajectory of your life, turn away from it. Because to continue to sin, to keep on sinning, is a road that leads to one place, and that is hell. The hell of fire, Jesus says. 
Listen to the language used in the New Testament for uprooting sin. Listen to the strength of this language. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Some of us need to leave here this morning. In fact, all of us need to leave here this morning butchering some, some things, putting some things to death. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is Paul. I mean, in my reading of the Bible, I, I mean, is there anyone aside from Jesus more committed to the Lord than the Apostle Paul? I doubt it. If, if it were a contest, if it were a contest, which it's not, I doubt it. Yet even Paul said, I discipline my body. Do you discipline your body, brother or sister? We must do this. Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And it is with these words in Romans that I want to finish this morning. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. And I want to say this, you can't do it on your own. You, we cannot do this on our own. Whatever it is that the Lord has revealed to you today, you can't leave here this morning with enough resolve, with enough willpower to make this happen. What you can do is humble yourself before the Lord and cry out for his mercy and turn from sin and seek him with all your heart, relying on his grace. By the spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. I also want to leave you with two images. And here's the question. Will you flee like Joseph from Potiphar's wife who wanted to sleep with him? Will you flee like Joseph or will you stand and gaze like David? God have mercy on us. Let's pray. Our Father, we so desperately need you. We cry out to you for your grace this morning to be evident among us in this body. God, help us to not sin in the ways in which Jesus is telling us here in, in, in your word. Father, I pray for fresh covenants with eyes this morning, God. I pray that adulterous affairs would cease in the name of Christ Jesus. I pray that addiction to pornography or any exposure to pornography at all would cease this day by your spirit. God, we ask for these things because we know you are able to do far more than we could ever imagine, think, or pray for. And so God, we believe that you are able and willing to sanctify us that we might image your blessed son to this world who so desperately needs him, God. Would you sanctify your bride this morning by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.